Welcome to Antioch Raleigh's weekly online sermon. We hope that you are encouraged by this word. For more information on Antioch Raleigh or access to our other online sermons, visit us at AntiochRaleigh.com. We're going to go ahead and continuing on with our worship service. It's good to see everyone. In case this is your first time here, my name is Ben Wickle. I'm one of the pastors. We want to welcome you here. And uh, when Leslie mentioned the missions trips that were coming up, uh, Mauritius, just do a a simple Google image search. (laughs) Just look at the picture. Some of you are going to do it right now. And you will go, I'm going there this summer. (laughs) I'm I'm going to sacrifice for Jesus in Mauritius. Oh, my goodness. Most breathtaking pictures I've ever seen. Um, You may have noticed that uh, this section right here is a little light. That's because our college students are meeting on campus. And usually at the start of each semester, their goal is to meet on campus to reach out, form relationships. And I want to take about 30 seconds real quick. I'm just going to pray for them. So just agree with me. Because they're, they're meeting, they're inviting a lot of unbelievers, college students that don't know Jesus. And I just want to partner with what God is doing right now in this moment. And we'll hear some testimonies maybe next week of how our prayers were able to, to make a difference in the, the service that they're having right now. So let's just pray. Pray with me. Jesus, we thank you for your heart for all the young people, NC State's campus, God. And we pray that your anointed would flow through uh, that campus, even right now as, you're, as our, our college staff, our college pastors are preaching the gospel, they're loving the lost on campus, God. We pray that the eyes of the hearts of those students would be enlightened to see the hope to which you're calling them to. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to start this morning by giving a little bit of, to take a step back and give a little bit of a recap of the past couple Sundays. It's interesting, when you preach on Sundays, it, it, it's, this isn't a complaint, it's just that we recognize as preachers that not everyone is coming every Sunday, yet there is a, a story, there, there's a continuity that we as preachers are trying to keep the congregation flowing through. So I, I want to give a little bit of the context of the past couple Sundays, particularly as we've been sharing 2023 focuses, what's the Lord saying. And then I also recognize that there are people here for the first time or maybe who are new to Antioch, and, and I, I want to give you even some of the big picture of who we are as a church. So let me start off with really what is our timeless mission as a church. So if this is, if you're you're new to Antioch, here we go. It's real simple. It's go make disciples. It's it's Jesus's, some of his last famous words, his marching orders. That's our mission as a church, to go make disciples, and that will never change. And the reason for that is, in case you've ever wondered, like, what's the end goal for discipleship? We talk a lot about, what's the end game? The Bible talks about how we are preparing for his return. The process of discipleship is really, to be even more biblically specific, it's wedding preparation. We are awaiting the great eternal bridegroom king's going to come back. He's coming back for us, and we got to get ready. We got to adorn ourselves. 
we got to remove the, the, the spots and the wrinkles and discipleship, that timeless mission that will never change is about us maturing into the bride that he's worthy to receive. That's our timeless mission. Now, the last couple weeks, the start of this year, we've, we've begun a series called Preparing the Way of the Lord. We want to prepare our hearts for his return. And last week specifically, Steve and Brenda both came up here, and they began to share some of the, the prophetic words that they've been hearing from our elders or from some of our, some of our intercessors, and as well as some of the prophetic words that we've been hearing throughout all of the Antioch network of churches. There's about 50 churches or so in the U.S., a lot of them overseas as well. And at the start of this year, we were like, Lord, what, what are you saying? What do you want to focus on? And it was incredible. If you haven't heard it, go back and listen to the sermon. There was dozens of confirmations. You know the Lord is speaking when he repeats the same thing to like totally two different people who don't know each other. And, there, and the word was, there was actually a series of, of pictures that are drawn from really Isaiah 33 that talk about these ships with no oars being led by God down a river. We're totally relying on the Holy Spirit. I'm, I'm kind of giving you a summary of what that prophetic word was. And it's a picture of complete dependence, God-reliance, relinquishing our control, leaning not unto our own strength and competence, but completely dependent on him, namely his power and his presence, his Holy Spirit. Because God wants to take us places. He has purposes in his heart for us that will require 100% trust in him. And this has corporate applications as a church, but it also has personal applications. So let me bridge our timeless mission, Go Make Disciples. I want to kind of connect that with what we're sensing for 2023, this, this, this emphasis on dependence. Here it goes. The degree of dependence on him, his presence, his power, is the degree into which we enter into maturity and become the bride he desires. The degree of dependence that we have on him is the degree to which we enter into maturity and become the bride he so desires. In other words, the more we depend on him, the more we're going to grow up. And that's our goal, that we would become a God-dependent people. And this morning, I want to take that idea of dependence, dependence, and I want to go a little bit deeper. If you're a left brain thinker, here's your outline, okay? I have three points. Number one is the why. Why are we emphasizing dependence on him? Why? Why does it matter? Number two, the how. How is God going to cultivate that dependence in us? And then lastly, number three, we have the what. What's our role? What do we do? The why. Can you say it with me? The why, the how, and the what. All right, we're going to go through those three things. Those are our three major points. Here's the why. Let's start with the why. And we're in this series on preparing the way of the Lord. So I'm going to present the why to you in a, through an, I'll use a fancy term here, an eschatological lens. Simply means, I know a lot of you know what eschatology means, but it's through the lens of his, his coming, his return, the, the last things. I want to talk about why we need to be dependents 
to be dependent on him in light of what's coming. Okay? Why is God highlighting dependence? Is it because he's narcissistic? He just needs us to need him? No, no, no. He's preparing us for what is coming. Namely, his return and the spiritual climate in which he's going to return. He wants, to, he wants us to be dependent because we need to be dependent on him because of two things. His return and the spiritual environment in which he will return. we got to be ready. Nothing short of 100% dependence on God's power and his presence is going to get us through the age that's coming. We got a little, little test of that a couple years ago, right? A little test of that. Jesus had a lot to say about preparing for his return and our need to depend on him. I can't teach on all of it, but let me give you three major points about the why. Here's one thing that's coming. It's called the dividing line. There's a dividing line coming, and in a lot of places around the world, it's already here. In the age leading up to his return, there will be no more middle ground, no more place to have one foot in the kingdom and then one foot in what we want to do, what the world's doing. This is how Jesus puts it. Matthew 13, he gives this parable. It's called the, some of your Bibles will call it the parable of the, of the wheat and tares or the, or, or, the, or the good seed and the bad seed. Jesus says in Matthew 13, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No. Lest in gathering the weeds you root up also the wheat along with them. Listen to this. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. A few verses later, the disciples want to know, well, what does this mean? They came to him. They left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us. Jesus, we got to know what this means. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and of lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. All throughout history, God has been calling people unto himself. He's been sowing seeds, building his kingdom through people over the earth. And at the same time, the devil has been sowing his seeds, advancing his kingdom, advancing his agenda, and tragically through the partnership of people. And what did Jesus say would happen? At the end of the age, the end of the age would not occur until both good seed and bad seed were fully grown. 
we will see the full manifestation of God's kingdom and the full manifestation of the kingdom of darkness at the same time. Listen to this, church. The spiritual climate at the end of the age will be so pressurized, there's going to be no more middle ground. You're either fully mature in the kingdom of light or fully mature in the kingdom of darkness. Here's another verse to back that up, this dividing line. Isaiah 60. This is a messianic promise of of the second coming of Christ. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. The principle is that as we approach his return, the contrast and the polarization will only grow wider and wider, thus making the place of middle ground compromise harder and harder. This is what it's going to mean for God's people. We're going to have to look different. We're going to have to act different. We're going we're to speak different. In fact, one of the major words that the Bible uses for Christian is saint. The word saint literally means holy ones. Take a look at the word holy in the Greek, hagios. It's just, it's literally different, set apart. We are to be different. Therefore, the more we take our faith serious, the more we will look different. And just like the early church, we are going to have to make some hard choices. I want to read from you an excerpt from this book, Bruce Shelley, Church History and Playing Language. So if you want to, I know it's kind of thick, some good nighttime reading material. But if you want to study church history, I highly recommend it. Let me read to you what was happening first century church. First century, this is Roman Empire. Fundamental to the Christian lifestyle and the cause of endless hostility was the, was the Christians' rejection of the pagan gods. The Greeks and Romans had deities for every aspect of living, for sowing, for reaping, for rain, for wind, for volcanoes, rivers, birth, death. But to the Christians, these gods were nothing, and their denial of them marked the followers of Jesus as enemies of the human race. One simply could not reject the gods without arousing scorn as a social misfit. For the pagan, every meal began with a liquid offering and a prayer to the pagan gods. A Christian could not share in it. Most heathen feasts and social parties were held in the precincts of a temple after sacrifice had been made, and the invitation was usually to dine at the table of some god. A Christian could not go to such a feast Inevitably, when he refused the invitation to some social occasion, the Christian seemed rude, boorish, and discourteous. Other social events, Christians rejected because they found them wrong in and of themselves. Gladiatorial combats, for example, were to the Christian inhuman. In amphitheaters all across the empire, the Romans forced prisoners of war and slaves to fight with each other to the death just for the amusement of the crowd. Christian fear of idolatry also led to difficulties of making a living. A mason might be involved in building the walls of a heathen temple. I'm going to read some things here, and if you've been paying attention to culture the last couple of years, you're going to go, yeah, I'm starting to see that. A mason might be involved in building the walls of a heathen temple. 
a tailor in making robes for the heathen priest, an incense maker in making incense for the heathen sacrifice. Some Christian school teachers would be involved in teaching with textbooks that told of the ancient stories of the gods and calling for observing the religious festivals. We might think that working with the sick would be a simple act of kindness, but even here, early Christians found the pagan hospitals under the protection of the heathen gods. In short, early Christianity was almost, early Christians was almost bound to divorce himself from the socioeconomic life of his time if he wanted to be true to his Lord. This meant that everywhere the Christian turned, his life and faith were on display because the gospel introduced a revolutionary new attitude toward human life. The stuff's starting to happen now, right? What if the sport you loved became so synonymous with the cultural political agendas that are antithetical to God? Got a choice to make. What if in order to keep your job, you were forced to support certain anti-godly stances? The values of the kingdom of darkness became so intertwined with the socioeconomic life that the early Christian had to divorce themselves. Talk, ab- talk about being, needing to be dependent. Right before Jesus died, or excuse me, right before Joshua died, he had this charge to Israel. This is the last book. This is the, at the very end of the book of Joshua. Joshua's about to die. He says, final farewell to the Israelites. And he says, choose this day whom you will serve. God or the gods of this world? There's a dividing line. What else? Why else do we need to prepare and we need to be dependent upon him? Because Jesus warned of deception. Matthew 24, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming? And Jesus answered, and listen here. This is the first thing he says. See that no one leads you astray. Not the unbelievers. No, he's talking to disciples. He's talking to believers, followers. He says, make sure no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. Paul echoed this in 1 Timothy. He says, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith. There are many false gospels. Let me list some some of these for you. A lot of them are, are... plaguing our college kids. Here they are, the gospel of works. I'm not a bad person. There's the gospel of moral relativism. I'm sure you've heard this. You have your truth, I have mine. The gospel of pluralism. Hey, there's many paths up the mountain. You guys heard these before, right? The gospel of spirituality. I'm not religious, I'm just spiritual. Probably the most popular, the gospel of emotionalism. Follow your heart. You heard that one before? Do what feels good. If we're not leading into Jesus, his presence dependent on his word, and we start listening to the voices of the world, commentary, social media, all that stuff, it may sound loving. You, you guys know the idea of the compass. Jesus is true north. I love Jesus and all these things, but uh, there's this one thing I don't like about the Bible. It's this one thing, uh, I'm going to go one degree off. And all our, our backpackers know if you go one degree off and then you go 50 miles, what's going to happen? You're going to be way off, right? And I've seen this happen with our, a lot of our young people. Oh, Jesus, but what? I don't like this thing. And they go five years into that thinking. 
they're gone. I see it time and time again. Dividing line, deception. We need to be dependent because of distractions. Matthew 24, Jesus says, But concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving into marriage until the day of Noah, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. What was Jesus trying to, what was his point here? Was he saying that eating and drinking and marriage are bad? No. He was saying that they were focused on temporal matters so much that they became distracted and they weren't ready for what is coming. A, a Chinese pastor got invited to come speak to a group of American pastors about 15, 20 years ago, maybe even before that. And this Chinese pastor, that he had been in the underground church, communist China, persecuted, in and out of jail. And, they, and they, these American pastors were like, man, we are so honored to have you come. We want to hear from you. Man, how did you make it? How did you get through communism? And the, this Chinese pastor he just looked at them all and he said, communism? You guys got something way worse than communism. Y'all have materialism. Blew away the pastors. Jesus warned, parable of the sower, Matthew 13. He sows seeds, but the thorns, they choke them out. What are the thorns? The cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches. It proves unfruitful. Hey, relatively speaking, we're an affluent people. And if we're not careful, hey, I know what it's like to be so focused on the new house, the new car, the 401, my kids' sports teams, that I forget what Jesus is wanting to do in the earth. We make things matter more that don't matter most. So here's the why. We, why we need to be dependent in light of what's coming. There's a dividing line. There's deception. There's a distraction. Now the How? How does he foster the dependence that we need to have? Throughout the Bible, one of the major, in fact, I, I believe it's one of his leading ways of fostering dependence in us, and it happens to be through crisis and trials. There's something about a crisis and trials that God will use to remove the roadblocks of greater dependence. And there are three roadblocks I want to give you that... God can use a crisis for to remove. The first one is unrepentant sin. In other words, the crisis you're in could be because God is trying to uproot sin in your life. Remember I gave you the book of Joshua. I talked about how Joshua gave that command. Well, what's the next book after Joshua? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, number Joshua, Judges. All right? And we love judges. We love the stories of judges, right? Gideon, man, that's an awesome story. Samuel, that's all. You know, got Samuel and they got Samson, you got all these judges. The, here's the structure of judges they did what was right in their own eyes, they sinned. The Lord used a crisis where they, they got conquered by an enemy. They cried out in their despair, Lord, save us. They get delivered, and then they repeat like 14 times. That's the literary structure of the book of Judges. That's all what it is. And it's a point that, that, that whoever, whoever wrote that was trying to make. This is the Lord's discipline. His disi he disciplines those whom he loves. If we have unrepentant sin in our life, he can use a crisis to get your attention. 
I love Galatians 5, where all the fruit of the Spirit are, right? Uh, love, joy, peace. Some of you have memorized that. How many of you have memorized the verse before that, before that the works of the flesh? I don't even know. I had to look that up. I didn't memorize that. That wasn't my Sunday school memorization. This is what Paul said. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that, these, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The works of the flesh will lead to death. They will rob your intimacy with God and they will steal you from your purpose. Another roadblock to the greater dependency that God can remove through crisis is the roadblock of lukewarm faith. In other words, the trial crisis you're in could be because of spiritual complacency, passivity that God desires to remove. Let me read you a list. This is, I didn't come up with this. Uh, Francis Chan, a lot of, I love Francis Chan. He's a good guy. He wrote these. How do you know if your faith is lukewarm? You don't really want to be saved from sin. You just want to be saved from the penalty of your sin. I felt that before. I remember getting dreams as a kid of, it, they had these, these, these plays that they used to do in the church. and they, called, they were called Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames. Some of you might have grown up going to those. And it was all about trying to scare the hell out of little kids. <laughs> and I remember I would get all these nightmares about how I'd like miss the rapture. Or I'd be like, ah. And it, it, in one way, it was like, I, I, don't wa- I want you, Jesus, because I don't want to go there. That, that's what it, it created to be. And it, I was about 13 years old. I, I remember going, I, I, I don't know if I hate my sin the way that he wants me to hate my sin. Now, here's another one. Lukewarm Christians, they rarely share their faith with their neighbors, their coworkers, their friends. Lukewarm Christians don't live by faith. Their lives are structured so that they never have to. Lukewarm Christians give God their leftovers, not their first and their best. God could be using the crisis and trial that you're in to wake you up from your lukewarm faith. Here's one more. Another roadblock that God wants to remove, and he could be using a crisis to do it. It's unhealed wounds. Unfortunately, a lot of us carry the baggage from childhood. Deep mother-father wounds. Abuse verbally, emotionally, physically. And the Lord desires your freedom. He desires your wholeness so much that he gave his life for it. He made it possible. There is healing in the atonement. There is healing in the cross. He made it possible. But sadly, even as Christians with this knowledge, we still carry around the wounds as adults. And it manifests in our inability to trust our spouses, trust community. We fear being vulnerable with others in our church. We can never be open because of shame. We don't want to be hurt because we were judged before. No one knows the real us. We were hurt so much, perhaps in our childhood, that the only way we could survive was to shut off the part of the heart that says, I will trust you. And as a result, your emotional, relational dysfunction with others leaves you miserable, unfulfilled, lonely. You don't belong. You're fearful. And so your life at an emotional, relational level sucks. 
There's that feeling of some par unfulfilled, you hate it. And guess what? The part of you that can at least be aware of that, I believe that's God saying, I don't have that for you. I want to heal you. It's not what I have for you. I remember when I was uh, 20, about 23 years old, I tore my ACL, I was playing soccer, tore it. Most, one of the most painful, if you ever done that, you know it's one of the most painful feelings you can feel in your knee and your body. And I actually went a few weeks before the, I went to the MRI to confirm it, but I knew something was off. But during the weeks in between, it, I, I actually started feeling a little bit better. Uh, the swelling went down. I could jog a little bit. I would even do a little bit of running. And, but there were certain movements that maybe it was a, a cut or a sharp turn. I was playing a sport that immediately, all of a sudden, a pain would shoot up, reminding me that something wasn't right. I needed a whole new ACL is what I needed. We have these real emotional injuries, and 99% of us don't ever get the proper spiritual surgery. So what happens is we go on with life, and for the most part, we have functional jobs. We, 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 we go to church. We have surface-level surface relationships. Then, boom, something happens. A spouse does something, a parent does something, someone in your community doesn't invite you. Something happens and it sets off that trigger that goes way, way deep. God's wanting to bring about healing. He uses crisis. Now, he doesn't always cause them, but he can use a crisis to remove the roadblocks to greater dependency, whether that's unhealed wounds, unrepentant sin, or lukewarm faith. Last point, the what. I want to end this morning talking about the what. What do we do to foster, to partner with God in pursuing greater dependence? Especially when we're in that crisis or we're in that trial. First of all, we, we need help from the outside. We need their mentors, professional counselors, trusted friends, spiritual advisors, we as a church, we also have, we have what's called RTF ministry. It stands for Restoring the Foundations. It's a train, they're, they're trained prayer counselors. All that to say these people are there for God to bring about maybe the spiritual surgery you need. They are there to do what Galatians 6 says, to help you bear one another's burdens. There are some burdens that you, you, you can't do by yourself. Galatians says it. You, you need someone else to carry it. A major way the Lord wants you to depend on him is actually learning to trust and depend on his body. We need help from the outside, but we also need help on the inside. And I want to end by sharing with you one of the most powerful stories in the Bible that speak to this idea of finding help, getting strength here on the inside. It involves one of the most famous Old Testament characters, David. You guys know David, right? He was famously known for being a, a man after God's own heart. We've heard that. Incredibly enough, it was 10 years. It was 10 years before, between when he was anointed to be king and when he actually sat on the throne. 10 years. And he didn't just have to wait. It wasn't just waiting. David endured more difficulty, more persecution, more rejection than any of us face in a lifetime. I'm going to skim through some of his story here. After his success, instant favor granted to him for defeating Goliath, he wins several battles against the Philistines, 
King Saul, though, becomes jealous, and he turns on him, forcing David to retreat for his life. David ends up in the wilderness. He ends up in a cave, and even in this cave, he's thankfully able, he gathers about four or 500 people, and they are literally the rejects of society. The scriptures say these were everyone who was in distress, in debt, everyone who was discontented joined up with David. Eventually, David moves his men to the land of the Philistines. He's like, hey, maybe I can be accepted by my enemies. The king of the Philistines gives him a city. It's called Ziglag. That's their home. And while here, David, he, he leads some attacks against the enemies of Israel, and he's, he's starting to convince the Philistines that he's actually he's doing it for them. And then one day, the Philistines say, hey, we're going to go fight the Israelites. And there's a lot of people go, hey, that say, hey, let's bring David. He's a mighty warrior. He's, he can help us. But the Philistines, are, they're a bit cautious. And they tell David and his men, you need to go back home. We, we can't take you because we're afraid you, you might turn on us. And so David and his men, they go back home. Some of you know the story. What do they find when they get back home? Their wives are taken. Their children have been kidnapped. Their homes are burned down. It's been looted by the Amalekites. So you have David. He's been rejected by his king. He's been rejected by his Israelites. Even his enemies started to reject him. And then his, his wives, his kids, they get kidnapped. As well as his friends' families. And just when you think it can't get any worse for David, what do his, his own men these are his closest. These were the people that he, 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 he was able to find some common ground with. What do his own men begin to do? They want to try to kill him. They plan to stone him. Do you think at that moment he remembered maybe 10 years prior to that? You think he might have been thinking in his distress, God, you gave a word. You said I was going to do this. Like you promised. And here I am, distressed. God has spoken words to every single one of you. And the crisis can make it seem like it's never going to happen. Scripture tells us what David's feeling in the moment. 1 Samuel 30, David was greatly distressed the people spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved every man for his sons and daughters. Without question, if we were in his shoes, we would feel the weight of it all. It can't get any worse. In fact, many of you have felt that despair of holding on to a word, a word from the Lord, being reliant, trying to be relying on him. And what does your flesh want to do? You want to run. You want to quit. You want to become resentful. You want to blame God. You want to blame those who had hurt you. But notice what David did. Pay attention. This is the epitome of true dependence. David strengthened himself in the Lord. Facing this dispiriting crisis, David did not look to himself for strength, but to the Lord. What does it mean that he strengthened himself in the Lord? It means that he fell on his knees. I imagine in prayer, he relinquished control. He let go of the oars. 
he resolved to fully devote himself to God's spirit. And God in that moment gave him the strength to overcome his distress, overcome his own discouragement, overcome his own fears, and even look past the offense of the men's rejection and then rally them to get their families back. One commentary put it this way, David's personal breakthrough in this moment, his ability to strengthen himself in the Lord and be faithful to his God's purposes, instead of collapsing under pressure, not only saved his life, but it saved and enabled him to lead his men to victory. So what about you? For those of you who have called upon the name of the Lord, you've each received a calling. Just as David has given a word of purpose over your lives, a word of destiny, so it is with us. Some are called to be church planners, overseas missionaries, leave legacies in business, education, family, science, technology, arts. Even more importantly is the realm of the family. Many, many of you, God is calling you to break the cycle of divorce in your families. God wants to end the family legacy of depression, mental health, fear, Anger, substance abuse, poverty. He's calling you. For those over 60 who may look back at your lives with brokenness, he's calling you to finish well. It's not too late. God's plans for us are immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine, and thus will require 100% dependence. Crisis will come, seeming to oppose all that you've been called to, but there's an invitation to strengthen yourself in the Lord. And it's as you strengthen yourself in the Lord that God begins to reveal to you that though there's a devil that prowls around like a lion seeking him whom he may devour, there's a greater lion inside of you. We begin to get a revelation of his majesty, his supremacy, his victory. You begin... You go from telling God how big your problems are to telling your problems how big your God is. We began talking about what we believe 2023 to be about. God's people laying down their self-sufficiency, becoming utterly dependent in His power and His presence. The more we depend on Him, the more we grow. I'm going to invite our worship team to come up. I'm going to ask that we could all stand and we're going to pray this morning. I believe there's a, an invitation for us to continue to lay down our oars, rely on Him, and depend on Him, and strengthen yourself in the Lord, especially if you're in the crisis. I'll ask that our prayer team could come up to the front, life group leaders, elders. I'm going to close this out in prayer and we're going to continue to worship. Jesus, we thank you that you see the end from the beginning. You see the end from the beginning. You see where we're going. You see that there's... Ultimately, at the end of the day, end of the book, we win with you. 
But for many of us, Lord, there's this journey, this tension, this disconnect in our lives, God. And so we ask for the grace to strengthen ourselves in you right now. We want to depend in you. We want to rely on your presence and your power, God, like never before. We know that you are calling us. There is a calling immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine, God, according to your power at work in our lives. So, God, we lay down the areas that are getting in the way of dependence, Lord. We, we confess where there may be sin, we confess where we've been passive and spiritually complacent. Lord, we confess that there's woundings that go deep inside that need healing, God. And we lean into you, Jesus. May we be like David who strengthened himself. He even looked past the offenses of those who betrayed him. God, we want that courage, God. We want that courage to look deep in your heart, to see to see what you see, God. Come speak to us this morning, Jesus. Give us a revelation of who you are and who we are, Lord. We want to be dependent on you, Lord.